You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss me? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Here we are, episode two. This thing is officially up and running. It's pretty exciting. Um, So uh, thank you. I want to start off by saying thank you. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Thank you for being here. And if you've already listened to the premiere episode with Sam Levine discussing The Godfather, uh, and you have downloaded and subscribed and rated and reviewed, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, I've been so, so excited to hear your feedback from the premiere episode of, of the podcast. It's been refreshing. It's been inspiring. It's been motivating. Um, and I have to tell you, I'm really happy with the episode that we have for you today. Um, today, my guest is Rebecca McKendry. So, Rebecca McKendry is a director and a writer, and she is a choreographer. She actually choreographed my musical, Slashed the Musical. Um, she is the former editor-in-chief of Blumhouse.com. She is a co-host on the incredibly popular podcast, Shockwaves. And um, she has a PhD in film and television studies with a focus on horror. So if that is not an inspirational and uh, impressive resume, then I certainly don't know what is. Um, but I was really thrilled to have Rebecca on the show, and I was thrilled she agreed to to do this. Um, and uh, she chose the movie Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Um, you know, this is a really, really interesting pick. So this first batch of interviews, a handful of them, um, were recorded months ago, and uh, this interview with Rebecca included. And, you know, Over the last handful of weeks, um, probably going into months now, uh, especially in the U.S., there has been a huge explosion in the conversation around um, harassment and, um, and, you know, um, sexual intimidation and and sexual violence and and all kinds of things between men and women uh, in the workplace. Um, It's been, I mean, I feel like every day there's a new revelation about somebody, um, not only in entertainment and politics or in other major industries um, that are resigning or being held accountable for, uh, you know, abusive, um, abusive behavior. So why am I bringing that up? Well, Today we're talking about Vertigo, as I said, and if you have seen Alfred Hitchcock's movie Vertigo, you know that this is a movie that, you know, for years has been debated and discussed in terms of not only the portrayal of women in this movie, but um, the relationship between James Stewart's character and uh, the other women that are in this film. Um, So if you are listening to this episode and you're going, gosh, how did this not come up? Well, this didn't come up because we um, actually recorded this conversation months ago. But I felt like it was important to mention because 
because as I was doing post-production on this episode, I sort of realized that, you know, I certainly don't have a PhD in film studies, but I do have a degree in film with a minor in women's studies. And so I have an academic background discussing film um, and entertainment and even took a semester long course studying the work of Alfred Hitchcock. And that's, I mentioned that in the uh, conversation you're about to hear, um, where I fir- is where I first saw Vertigo. Rebecca, on the other hand, um, as I've said, has a P has her doctorate in in film studies, and and so I couldn't remember or recall in all of the debate and conversation that has surrounded the movie Vertigo over the last however many decades, two women that have that are passionate about film, obviously, but have academic backgrounds in film studies as well, really diving into this movie. And, you know, Rebecca and I are both very contemporary women and we have a very uh, off-the-cuff, fun conversation about this movie, but... I think it's really cool. I'm really excited for people to hear perhaps a different take on something that has been considered a classic. Uh, not the whole time. You know, Vertigo was was not well received when it first was released, but was re-released a couple decades later and found acclaim. Um, but uh, as we point out in the interview or in the conversation, you know, in terms of the AFI list, which, you know, is where we pick our movies from, this movie had a huge leap in terms of um, its ranking amongst the American Film Institute between the first list and the second list. So I'm really excited that you're going to get to hear this. I'm really excited that we had this conversation. I hope that it's in- interesting and exciting for you, um, as it was for me. And uh, so just full warning, um, I say this, I guess, uh, at the beginning of most ep- last week's episode as well, but there are spoilers. We are going to be discussing this film as though um, you have already seen it. And don't worry, we have way more conversation about the movie than just um, the, you know, very contemporary themes of men and and women and how they deal with each other. But um, another thing that we get into is the idea of um, thrills and chills and the idea of that specific list that the American Film Institute put out. Um, For those of you who may or may not know, it's actually fun. If you go onto their website, you can look and you can see that there um, there are several lists that they have made in addition to the 100 years, 100 movies list. Um, and Thrills and Chills is a, especially for horror fans like me and Rebecca, the Thrills and Chills list is a, a bit of, it's a point of contention, but hopefully, you know, you guys will enjoy our conversation. Um, the last thing I want to mention is that Rebecca later in the episode mentions uh, a movie called Nightcrawlers, and she is actually referring to uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal um Dan Gilroy movie Nightcrawler. So just a quick, um, it was a little, little, she just misspoke very briefly. Um, but just so you know, the movie that we are referencing and okay, this has been kind of a long intro, but, um, I'm excited and I hope you are too. Again, I just want to say thank you before we get into the main show because um, this has all gone off so well and it's only just beginning. And this is something that I am doing 
on my own. Um, there is no company or network behind me yet. Um, there are no sponsors behind me yet. It's just something that I really, really wanted to do. And um, the reaction that you guys have given has been so awesome. And I'm just, I'm really proud and I'm grateful. Um, speaking of, uh, we have the theme you heard, the Saving the Wolf theme was composed by Sean Keller. You can find him on Twitter at underscore Sean, S-E-A-N, Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. And uh, today's episode was engineered, sound engineered by Folsom Keller. Um, and last but not least, since uh, this is completely independently run and produced and and happening, um, there is a Patreon. So something that's cool. Uh, every Tuesday, free episodes, they go up on iTunes and Stitchers and Go- Stitcher and Google Play and uh, and on my website, clarkwolf.com. And then on Thursdays, you get a little mini episode, um, which is an extension of the conversation that we have in the main episode. Um, last week, Sam Levine and I got into a bigger, broader discussion about Quentin Tarantino and the evolution of his career as a director. And that was the main focus of our mini episode. And this week, uh, I love the mini episode that is coming this Thursday. I think it is really juicy and really interesting. Um, And so those mini episodes are available to $5 or more subscribers uh, on Patreon. In addition to just the podcast, there is a video newsletter kind of just previewing all the stuff that's going on uh, this this month. And um, we're going to be doing movie watches. So where we get to all come together digitally and you guys vote on a movie and we watch the movie together and uh, all sorts of fun, interactive things that are going on throughout the month. So if you um, have the means, if you are want to contribute, uh, there are levels from $1 and $5 and $10 all the way up to $50. Um, and of course, there are re- rewards and prizes and all those things uh, included in that as well. And if you've already subscribed, boy, oh boy, this is going to be my 10th thank you in this intro, but um, but well worth it. I, I am so grateful for your support. And if you haven't subscribed, that's okay. Um, or if you haven't contributed to the Patreon, that's totally okay. I'm really happy you're here. Uh, if you can, rate and review the podcast on your um, network of choice, wherever you get it. Um, feel free to send me a message via my website, uh, share the episode with your friends, family, loved ones, etc. All right, I'm done rambling. That's it for now. Uh, thank you guys for being here and please enjoy this conversation between me and Rebecca McKendry discussing Alfred Hitchcock's classic Vertigo. <music> So, yeah, thanks again for having me over. Oh, no problem. I'm um, excited to be on the show. Sorry, I had to reschedule several times. No, that that happens, and it's busy, busy lives and, and busy things, um, but any excuse to be nerdy and talk, I think, is a good, is a oh good gosh, one. gosh, yeah. A good thing. Um, so, um, Becca, I wanted to start by just, well, first of all, I will introduce you, of course. So, I have Rebecca McKendry here. Uh, I am in her house. Oh, wait, did we start? We started. Oh, my gosh. 
good. I, I think it's good to just keep chit chat a little bit so people don't get, uh, you know, it's not super formal. I like it. Um, I like it. I was not even aware like we had started. So it just glided from like reality into the podcast. Good. I like that. That's a good thing. Um, but so Rebecca, you are, I mean, I feel like your list of credits, especially when it comes to film is there's a lot of them. You're a director and you are a writer yes. and you uh, are the editor in chief of Blumhouse.com mm-hmm. and a podcaster and a doctor. Yes, of I am a doctor. So, uh, so do you, I, I certainly have not articulately um, told anybody listening exactly what you do, but would you like, is there anything that you think they should know about you to start? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I, I started in this industry about 15 years ago at Fangoria. And uh, I had kind of, at the time, I had just gotten out of school and I was working as a school teacher. And I, for lack of a better word, had like a total breakdown where I was like, I don't want to teach ninth grade English for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband was there with me, luckily, and we sold everything that we owned. Like we had just gotten married and we'd been given all this like crate and barrel furniture. And we despised every single thing that was like suburbia and being like a permanent teacher and things like that. And so we we literally sold everything that we owned and moved to New York City. Um, and the only thing I knew at the time was that I wanted to work in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Like I had no clear direction. I still don't have a 100% clear direction, which is why I do everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of love everything and still my favorite, absolute favorite place to be is sitting in the audience. And, um, but after I, I ended up working for a couple of film festivals and then I fell in with Fangoria and uh, I, I've always loved horror films. Like it has always definitely been my genre of choice um, so much so that I'd like focused a lot of my academic work on it. And um, once I started getting going with Fangoria and started kind of moving up the, the different um, positions there, I worked as a writer. I was directing stuff for Fangoria TV. I was um, working as an associate producer for the radio show. And because Fangoria was such a small do-it-yourself group, I mean, I think at our max, there was maybe 10 of us that were working there full-time. And so a lot of it was like, okay, well, what do we need? Okay, well, we're doing the Chainsaw Awards. We need somebody to coordinate the whole thing. Uh, We're doing a convention now. We need somebody to do the live shows and we still have to keep the magazine running. And so it really did... um, um, make me uh, become kind of a jack of all trades um, just because it was so kind of like boots, you know, pull up your boots and do whatever you can to get it done. And uh, yeah, that's still kind of prevailing in my life where I'm the editor-in-chief of Blumhouse.com and so I do a copious amount of writing for that and writing across the board. Um, but I definitely got that kind of director bug while I was working at Fangoria because I was like, I directed music videos for them. I did a, um, a Guar video and a couple of other things, um, a municipal waste one. And it definitely kind of um, got me into the directing world. So now I'm like, I totally want to do that too. And then the podcast just kind of happened and I absolutely love it as well. So yeah, I just, I'm going to keep doing everything. I also host a trivia night and somewhere in there, I decided I wanted to go back and get a PhD focused entirely on horror, cult and exploitation movies. 
And so I did that. So yeah, I'm technically now a doctor of horror films, which is weird to think about. But yeah, I did it. Well, so. I think, you know, I'm uh, part of the reason why I'm glad that you picked the movie that you picked today is because I have an academic uh, history with this film. Um, I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I do too. Um, and it's, but it's interesting because, you know, uh, like you said, sometimes the most fun part is to be in the audience. Yeah. And um, this is a movie that, and, and this director is a director who, I mean, people have been discovering his work for decades yes. now. And um, and so the movie that we're talking about is Vertigo. Yes. And But I wanted to ask you what, uh, aside from, I'm sure there is an academic history for you to this movie. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. But where is the first place that you actually saw this movie? That was actually in college. It was my academic Me history um, because I was a film major for my undergrad and I was sitting in an intro to film class. My professor was Stephen Prince at Virginia Tech and he ended up going on to write a bunch of books and stuff. Um, but I remember him showing it. And I will say that what I perceived at the time with Vertigo is not what I perceive now. Like my, because I rewatched it um, when we picked it as kind of the film mm -hmm. to do for this podcast. I went back and rewatched it. My reading of it is now completely different. This is great because, <laughs> because so when, okay, uh, for our listeners, I tell all the guests, all of my guests, I say, you know, you get to pick whatever you want mm -hmm. off of any of these lists. So it's hundreds of movies. Yes. And what I tell people is, and part of the reason that I started doing this is because in our world, people, you know, okay, so it's not about, how do I say this? I, people outside of the horror world see me as a horror person because I, yeah. I, I am a fan and it's a niche, I suppose. I get the same thing. Like everyone, all of my friends I went to high school with who don't know horror just assume I must be like totally gothic and satanic right. now <laughs> um, for lack of a better way of putting it. So yeah, yeah so the horror kind of, the the kind of um, patima that gets put on yes. you that, you know, it's, it's oh, you're horror. Which is, which is something I'm fine with. Yeah, I'm I mean, okay I with it. Any problem I can with that. with that patina. It's yeah, fine. it's fine. But I wanted to give people the opportunity to talk about whatever they want, whether it's inside their quote unquote brand mm -hmm. or outside. Um, but, uh, but I also tell people, if you want to rewatch the movie, I suggest rewatching the movie because exactly what you just say. Yeah. The thing, the thing that you saw the first time you saw it, or even maybe the most recent time you saw it, may very well not be your reading of it. Yeah, it definitely changed. And I did think of picking a film that was a bit more on brand for me. Like I, I thought about going with Jaws or one of the more kind of horror-centric mm -hmm. ones. Because Vertigo, even though it's by Hitchcock and he's most well known for Psycho. Mm -hmm. um, um, and Alfred Hitchcock presents like he definitely has that kind of horror persona. Vertigo doesn't really classify as a horror film. Right. It's definitely kind of a more straightforward noirish thriller. Um, but when I first saw Vertigo, it was in like freshman year film studies class, being told that, you know, it's a classic work of art. It's amazing. Everything in it is so well-crafted and sculpted. It's all about directorial intention. It's fantastic. And so for years, I had just kind of said, oh yeah, it's a classic. It's a classic, and I do have to say, my feelings now, rewatching it, um, are, are completely 
completely different from that, um, which is weird to say that I'm going against a classic, but... Well, let's get into that. Yeah. Let's get into that because... Um, so before, actually, before we get into that, uh, for our listeners, in terms of the AFI stats, uh, the Vertigo score is number 12 on the list of scores. Um, and in 1998, when the first list came out, Vertigo was ranked at number 61. And when they revised the list in 2007, it moved up 52 spots. To nine. To nine. Which, yeah, is insane to think that it is the ninth greatest movie ever made. It's, like, I would have even argued with that on my first viewing of it. Absolutely. Uh, like, that's a little too lofty for this film. It's it's interesting. People and academics uh, who, who are the film uh, people, I suppose, um, really are in love with this film. Um, James Stewart is the number three star on the list of stars for AFI, um, and uh, it, Vertigo is the number 18th, and number 18th on the th- list of thrills. Um, wow. So those which are- I have major issues with that list in general, which I'll get into later. I will say, so uh, this is good. This is, I, this yeah. is, this is exactly what I wanted from this podcast. I'm <laughs> very, very excited about our conversation. Okay, so let's just dive in. What initial, uh, wh- wh- now that you've seen the film and rewatched the film, mm-hmm. how uh, can you gener- in general say, like how your opinion of it has changed. Yeah, um, so when I first watched it, I was very aware of kind of the cinematic devices that were being used. You know, that there were constant spirals that he was making with the camera. Bernard Herrmann makes these spirals with music. I mean, the whole thing seems to be about obsession and dizziness. And now when I watch it, the whole thing is about oppression. And like I, I, and I'm not usually one to hop up on like a feminist soapbox. I usually kind of think um, that I will lead women in horror more by my actions than by yelling really loud. <laughs> is kind of my my general um, feeling on that. But for this one, like I, I was watching it and I was like, oh wow, this character's weak. Oh wow, that character's weak too. Oh god, there's only three women in this movie and they all suck. Yeah, and um, and Midge. I mean is just like Midge just about killed me the point where she's first off she is the quickest painter in the world because he literally like he leaves and he goes away for two weeks and then he comes back and she's like I painted this picture and it's like this massive like mural of herself and I'm like wow she's quick but and then when he kind of deflects her advances she's pretty much I think she actually screams I'm so stupid I'm so stupid oh my god so we get One woman who is being completely oppressed by her husband to the point that she has no power whatsoever and is very submissive and quiet and very demure. We have Midge, who is actually kind of outgoing, but as soon as she gets kind of rejected, she immediately goes into the I'm so stupid mode. And then we have the the final girl, um, who is um, Judy, who, Judy Barton, who spends the entire movie being kind of like, crafted into what he wants her to be. Um, And so this time when I saw it, at first I I had this kind of very knee-jerk reaction of, oh my God, this film is so just, this is just so chauvinistic and awful. And then I started questioning, well, is it subversive? Like, is Hitchcock trying to be a feminist? And is he trying to state that these problems exist? But then I was like, that is so not Hitchcock. Because Hitchcock was like a known kind of chauvinist, for lack of a better word. Um, Like, he was definitely a womanizer or would have been, he was like the womanizer who never carried it out. That's right. Um, 
And so like, and this was like, he was known to be this type of person where he was just kind of exploitive of females. So then thinking that he made this subversive film with all of these undertones, I was like, I don't know. Like, I honestly don't know whether this is a feminist or anti-feminist movie because it could go either way, but it's not, there's a lot of subtext mm -hmm. there. Like you definitely get the idea. He was very aware that these women were being oppressed. Mm -hmm. Like he was playing with it. But whether or not he was okay with it or against it does not really seem to come out in the film. Um, like he never once gives a really clear message. And so I, I still kind of, and so I left this viewing, my, my most recent viewing kind of going, my God, I, I'm not fond of this classic yeah. anymore. I went from being like, oh yes, this is a great work of art. Everyone must see it to being like, I seriously don't know how I feel about this movie yeah. now. And so then I went on our podcast that I do mm -hmm. um, with Elric Kane, Rob Galuza, and Ryan Turek and talked about how I had just recently watched it and that, and I was very sheepish about saying it at first where I was like, so I just watched Vertigo. I don't really like it anymore um, because I know it's like Elric Kane's favorite movie. Oh, wow. And then immediately Rob and Ryan were like, yeah, I don't really either. And then I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm not alone in kind of reading it different decades after it was made. And I still have this, um, it's still beautifully crafted. Sure. Amazingly made. But yeah, it just, it feels different. It, it does. And you know, it's interesting. I was doing a little reading before I came here and, um, you know, I was reading that the, the critical reception initially of the film was not great. But in the 80s, in the early 80s, there was a re-release mm -hmm. and people started to rediscover it. And that is mostly, according to the source that I was reading, where this affinity um, came from, Yeah, um, was from this re-release. And, uh, but but it is, it's, look, I, I remember when I was in college writing a paper on this because I took a course uh, called Hitchcock in my in my film. I was a film major as well in my undergrad, and um, this was of course something that was worth talking about, or um, you know, the professors all wanted us to talk about. And I I couldn't find the paper, um, the the whole paper that I wrote, but I do remember writing it in college as no, I think this is actually a very pro feminine, like a very pro woman movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then I rewatched it again uh, a couple, of, you know, when we decided to talk about it. And I was like, oh my God, this is like miserable. Yeah. This is a miserable thing to watch. And you know, it's so interesting. I think what has changed for me it, for the better is Kim Novak. I love she her. She's amazing. So good. The performance, because the cool thing is Judy is such a really fleshed out woman. I mm. feel like I know who Judy is. Yes. Judy has a personality. She's outgoing. She's sassy. She She's a fighter. She's not changing that makeup. No. No matter what gets changed, that makeup stays. That's right. That's and, right. And that's a very clear character decision, um, which I absolutely love. And then at the same time, when she is playing Madeline, she's so you know, turned down and so stoic that it, it's almost really amazing that it's the same woman playing these two roles. Yeah, like that is something that I wouldn't, I remember not picking up on that at first. Like it took me a few minutes of her on screen and this is granted back when I saw it in the 90s in college, mm -hmm. um, but it definitely took me a few minutes on screen to go, oh, they're supposed to look alike. I get it, I get it. Um, but yeah, it's just the, the characterization is so completely different. So yeah, I still... That is the one thing I will take from this film. I still think Hitchcock is an amazing filmmaker, amazing craftsman, which I'll get into some of the devices. Um, but yeah, Kim Novak, 
freaking rock. She's so good. Yeah. She's so good. And you know, it's interesting too, in terms of the dynamic, like I remember, I love Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hopeful that one day, you know, we'll actually get to spend a full hour talking about it on this show. But um, when I rewatched it at the cemetery, so, you know, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery for our listeners who are not in Los Angeles do, do, does these screenings every summer. Um, and I went and saw Rear Window and it was amazing to me how Grace Kelly spends the whole movie begging Jimmy Stewart to give her the time of day. Wow. And begging Jimmy Stewart to be interested in her. And I'm just like, it's Grace freaking Kelly. Yeah. And she's, forget about how beautiful she is. That is a badass character. Yeah. Like that character in Rear Window, I love her. Um, and so it's so interesting how through the years, um, kind of revisiting these things, how out of place some of the relationships feel. Yeah, well, Psycho still feels that way for me as well, where obviously we have the mother in that who's yes. like completely oppressive but horrible. Yes. But I've always really liked the character of Marion Crane, and I, I've spoken about this on um, Chalkwaves before and written about it on the, the various websites I do, where Marion Crane is one very ballsy character. Absolutely. Because she steals the money and drives away. She is like one of the most, she takes initiative, Mm -hmm. Um, which for a lot of kind of the femme fatales at this time is not always something that you'd see. A lot of kind of the femme fatales in these movies kind of just go with the flow. They more are the receiver of the actions and the receiver of what's happening, but she's actually really kind of creating it. And granted, she dies. Um, But she... Once she gets there, she also kind of leads the conversation. Mm -hmm. She is leading the conversation with um, Anthony Perkins the whole time. And, you know, she's definitely making her own decisions about what to do and then ultimately decides that she's going to go back and kind of dig herself out of her own private island. But, um, yeah, I mean, and then she dies, of course. But, (laughs) I mean, she's actually making decisions to get there. I just wish these women were... Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And it's also funny, like I wrote down some of these lines, you know, it, it about when they're talking about her hair. He he says, I want you to dye your hair. And it's just like, what did I wait a second. Yeah. And and obviously, look, for, for anybody listening to this, it's of course the movie came out in 1958. This movie is what, almost 60 years old? I yeah. mean, the, so ob- we'll give it a obviously, little obviously, yes. Yeah. However, I do think it's really interesting how he says you know his 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 justification for please change your hair is oh what does it matter to you it can't matter <laughs> oh, to you yeah. and I was just like yeah why would it matter to her no. what color her hair is Pointless. Um, or I need you to be Madeline for a little while and it's like wh- what um, but finally the thing that the thing and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because w- sometimes when I watch these roma- um, films that have a have a, a conflicting romance in them mm-hmm. um, I, I often and, and also um, a film that is telling me that I am supposed to be sympathetic to the male character yes because the film definitely posits it as that, that Absolutely. they want you to be sympathetic because all these people are trying to make him believe certain things. So he is definitely provoking our sympathy, but at the same time, he's an asshole. He's, and I yes. think that Hitchcock was aware of that um, because Hitchcock was aware of how oppressive it is. He had to have been. I mean, he had, yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the conclusion that I came to was like, if a woman betrayed by her lover 
did these same things. She would be a psycho bitch that, you know what I'm saying? Like nobody would watch- Forcing him up on a bell tower to his death. Like change the way you look and dress like this. And it's all the tropes and narratives of a controlling girlfriend or Mm -hmm. a controlling, that controlling woman character. And, and it's like, yeah, you would, you would never have an audience look at her and go, oh, I feel so badly for her because she was tricked or she was misled. It's like almost like fatal attraction. Oh my gosh. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, well, she's, she's the one who's a bitch or she's the one who's crazy. And it's like, granted, you don't need to kill somebody's uh, pet and all, go to all of these links. But at the same time, he didn't do the right thing either. Yeah. Uh, one of the weirdest kind of, uh, I, I'm not sure how to take this moments of the film for me was when she wakes up. So she's been kind of knocked out or passed out. She wakes up naked yes. in Jimmy Stewart, in James Stewart's bed. And she doesn't say anything about calling the police. She just says, oh, thank you. Yeah. You've rescued me. She's naked. And all she asks for is a cup of coffee. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And I get that that was supposed to be kind of a sexy, like ambiguous, like tense sexual moment, but dude, like it just, it was creepy for me. Oh yeah. If anybody, if I woke up, if I had had an accident and woke up in someone's bed naked, half naked, half naked, naked, I would have some serious problems. Yes. It was, it was weird. And I did, um, suddenly feel like Mulholland Drive had pulled a bit from that Mm. where she wakes up and she wakes up at this house and can't remember how she got there. And it was kind of like, Oh, I see what Lynch did there. Sure. Um, kind of pulling from it. So yeah, Yeah. I also remember, it was reminded me a little bit of 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm-hmm. I think that that movie goes out of its way to be like, no, 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 this guy is not a sexual predator. But at the same time, she does. Mary, Li- Mary Elizabeth wakes up without pants on. But I mean, granted, he had to set her. Wasn't it? Wasn't it her leg? I think he had to yeah. set her leg and, or something like that, still, or she had a cut. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so, but there are. I mean. We, we touched on it a little earlier, but I think there are things in this film where you can look at it and go, yeah, this is, I see why people consider this to be his masterpiece. It definitely has a lot of craftsmanship to it. I mean, like Hitchcock directed the shit out of this film. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of the messages that get kind of that muddied it for me. And I mean, there's amazingly long tracking sequences throughout. He really um, creates kind of a kaleidoscopic, uh, style with some of it where he's playing with these spirals and spinning cameras. And it's also one of the first films that used um, what later became, it's called the reverse tracking shot. Yes. It's also, most people know it as the Jaws shot, which is kind of what I think like that the quintessential scene for it. Um, but this was the first one to do it. And so Hitchcock really did pioneer a lot of stuff with this. And um, even the opening credits, I mean, Hitchcock yes. always had amazing opening credits, but we're on this one, he's doing the close up on the body parts and the spirals. And I mean, Bernard Herrmann's score really does tease out um, that kind of element of like obsessing. And the score really does feel kind of like it's spiraling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's amazing. So the kind of minutia and mechanics of this movie are off the charts. I 
Yeah. The dream sequence too, I love. Oh yeah. Um, Scotty's dream sequence is like so weird and it's like very stylish and cool and also sexy mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and and it's, it's so interesting to me how, so I mean, you know, we've both, I think, studied Hitchcock academically and as fans. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as film people, I think you can't help but be aware of the allure of Alfred Hitchcock. But, you know, he... He was a, he was on the forefront of a lot of cinema mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, um, and yet he's not necessarily a progressive. The messaging isn't necessarily progressive, yeah. and yet this sequence to me. When you look at it, the animation sequence or the dream sequence, whatever you want to call it, I just was like, it's so hard for me to believe that this was Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, and and maybe maybe that's like, I don't know. Did, did any of that strike you at all? The whole movie struck me as that, where the whole time I was like, well, it's what I was mentioning before, where I'm like, it feels feminist, but I don't know if it's feminist, where it's like that there's just no clear message for me there. It's like... Obviously, he knew something was going on, but not it's not apparent enough to tease out a clear message, mm-hmm. which maybe is the genius of the film, is that it does not give kind of a clear message. I mean, all dames are weak and evil, or are we displaying that on screen to show how stupid that belief is? Mm-hmm. So it goes back and forth with it. And um, yeah, I did read a very interesting um Uh, kind of theory on it that this whole thing was Alfred Hitchcock's take kind of film personification on the Hollywood studio system of the time. Interesting. Where it was all about crafting women, denying them their own personality, creating what they are. Of course, you're going to dye your hair. Of course, you need to wear this suit. And that for me was kind of the most like, okay, maybe. Mm -hmm. Like I was kind of like, maybe. But even if still, if that was the reading, it it wasn't teased out well enough to make it really apparent. Yes. And I think too with, um, so I read Roger Ebert's um, short review on it and he sort of talked about how he, he perceives it as, you know, this is Hitchcock's relationship to his women. Mm -hmm. So it's basically like, you know, James Stewart is the Hitchcock, um, you know, what am I trying to say? The the stand in essentially. And the, the actress is is it could be anybody, but essentially you are going to conform to hit the Hitchcockian, uh, th- he's our surrogate essentially yeah. for Alfred Hitchcock, which I thought was interesting too. It is. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of history with the film in terms of who was going to play this character. Yeah. I had read that there was a bunch of different people that were put in for both the James Stewart role and the Kim Novak role. Yeah. And I know for the Kim Novak role, originally Vera Miles was the one that he had really wanted. Um, but with scheduling issues, uh, she became pregnant, um, and was unable to, to make the movie. Um, and so, and, and I think he said, I think there is a quote from him that I read where basically he said, he told Francois Truffaut, he was like, yeah, I, I just sort of became over her at that time. And we never really could get it, get it going again. And I was, wow, you know, that sounds so relationshipy, it, right? Yeah. And same with, I mean, honestly, it, then again, I'm sure this will come up in future episodes, but Grace, his relationship to Grace Kelly. I mean, when she decided, no, I'm going to retire and I'm going to not do this anymore. I mean, I don't think their relationship ever recovered yeah. from that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Kim Novak was, was really perfect for this. Completely. And she definitely did show the duality of, you know, being so anti-Madeline mm-hmm. um, from the get-go. 
And um, yeah, the movie, when I first saw this, I remember my professor saying that it's a film about someone intentionally being driven insane. Huh. Which means that the entire focus of it when I first saw it was being put on the Jimmy Stewart character. And now I didn't even pay attention to the Jimmy Stewart character. He was just like there. Um, I paid attention to Kim Novak's yeah. character. She was the central focus for me. So I'm interested to see if that is kind of um, across the board, kind of the focal change, like how it changes from when everybody watches it, you know, at one point in time, they all focus on one character. But then, you know, if you had to pick the main character of this movie, who would it be? And for me, it was Kim Novak. Absolutely. But the first time it was definitely Jim Stewart. Yes. And it's, well, it's also interesting too, because a lot of these characters have so many different names. Yes. So, <laughs> and, and it's, it's funny. So we're, you know, referring, trying to refer to them as Judy or Madeline or Scotty or J and Johnny O. But Scotty's like, a nickname. His real name was John Ferguson. Exactly. And then there's Gavin, who was the gangster who was kind of masterminding all this. But at times they called him by his last name, which was like Esner or Eisner. And yeah, so the whole that was definitely um it, it took a little bit of getting used it's, to it's such a strange choice mm -hmm. it feels like such a strange choice but at the same time then you start to go well wait a second could it be the duality of people and mm -hmm. could it be you know could it be intentional so you are you know um J James, jimmy stewart is scotty to midge but to you know um judy is i think he's johnny yeah right? johnny so it, or john or whatever and it's like yeah, this is just, um, it's, it's overwhelming yeah. to keep all the personas straight. So there definitely is. I mean, I believe that Hitchcock was very intentional with that one, that saying that this is a statement about everybody having different personalities and how we, you know, present those in various situations. Um, one of the things that I found really fascinating that I read about the film was that the censorship board stepped in and at one point, they made him put an, an ending on the film mm. where um, Jimmy Stewart's character returns to Midge and they both sit there in silence and listen to a radio broadcast about how the police are hunting down Gavin and he's like on the run throughout Europe. And this was because the censorship board did not think it was okay to leave that kind of like Gavin obviously masterminded his wife's death. They didn't think that it was okay to just kind of end with, well, what the hell happened to Gavin? Right, like he got they, away with it essentially. They didn't want to leave it as that. But then as soon as I read that, I was like, but they're okay with Jimmy Stewart forcing a woman up to a bell tower to her death at gunpoint. Right. That's okay? No so, problem. She no just, problem. She was asking for it. You can I go mean, on home to Midge now. She was asking for she it. She was asking for you it. You clearly <laughs> were driven insane. Um, you're fine. So yeah, even just the censorship board at the time, that that's the one part of it that they felt needed to be kind of, we need some reconciliation on this character. He is the absolute last character I would have picked to say we need some reconciliation on. Absolutely. Um, but it's an interesting thing that they ended up making him do. And so they shot it and then the footage um, disappeared for a while. They didn't end up making him put it on the film. Um, they just had it in case anybody was like asking for it, like in case it became an issue. Mm -hmm. And then they rediscovered it in like 1993. And I think it was included on the Laserdisc release and um, the, the DVD releases that came out around that time. Um, but yeah, it's literally just, because what is he going to say to Midge after this point? Like, 
if I was Midge, I would be like, no, fuck you. You go away. Get You're not coming back my to my house. house. Exactly. But apparently she lets him come back in. They have coffee and listen to the radio together in silence. That's really sweet. Like you do. Like, yeah. yeah. That's so, so adorable. That's so sweet of her. Well, it's like, so let's talk about the ending of this movie because, you know, the, uh, so we are clearly on... Um, fans of Judy or empathetic or sympathetic with yes. Judy. Um, and to be to be honest, I, I would wonder, no matter what your gender is uh, or however you identify, if you would to watch this movie now and not really and truly feel sorry for her because she is saying through the whole film, I love you. Why can't you just love me for yes. who I am? And, and, the, and she's like, I'll do anything you want for you, but like, don't, why can't you just love me? Mm-hmm. And it's the saddest, like, I was like, girl, you need to listen to Lemonade and you need to get the fuck out oh of there. Oh my God. It's like a stretched out version of Midge where Midge yes. is very much like just spurting that out in one, you know, little 30 second How clip. Interesting. It's like a drawn out version I of it. I didn't even think yeah. about that. And yet that is so interesting. Mm. Well, but props to Judy because at no point does she say, I'm stupid. Okay, fine. Whatever you need, I'll do. Right. She says things like, why do I need to dye my hair? Right. Like she's, she definitely kind of gives him some guff on all of it. And even when he's like, the suit scene just about killed me. Um, because, you know, everybody's like, oh, clearly you're a man who knows what you want and things like that. And um, she's just kind of sitting there, but she just keeps saying things like, I liked the other one. Yeah. Like interjecting. And I'm, you know, it was very soft spoken. And in the end, she ended up with the suit he wanted. But I was just like, go, <sighs> yeah. go, uh, yeah. go, Judy, you do your thing. That's right. Keep your your weird little makeup. It's good. <laughs> she had the weirdest makeup, but I love it. It was, I think it was very, um, of, at, the time. of the time. And it was definitely like, she was far more, um, whereas Madeline was very buttoned up and formal. Judy was a bit more kind of off the shoulder with some heavy eyeliners. Yes. So yeah, I think of the time that was definitely more of like a, yeah, kind of more relaxed so makeup styling. at this ending it, uh, to talk about this ending, I mean, I think that it's, it's unfair to judge, uh, older films, I think by the same standards that we have today. I think now so many of our, we, we want so many of our movies to tie up with a beautiful little bow. Yeah. Um, and you know, this one, she falls off the bell tower and then boom, we're done. We're Goodbye. done. Out. Hello. That's it. Okay. <laughs> it just... I guess the problem is done. We should probably find out what happened to Gavin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and that was the thing was, I mean, I couldn't like, I could not Look, can we talk about Jimmy Stewart's reaction or yeah. lack of reaction? Did yeah. you notice that? Yeah, he was completely, um, there was nothing there. It was apathy. I mean, like, it was just like there was nothing. And um, a woman literally fell to her death in front of you. And I, part of me said, okay, well, he's supposed to be mentally unhinged now. Like, we have broken Jimmy Stewart. Sure, sure. And this is his being broken. Like, he just went from, like, his big cathartic moment where he's driving her up the bell tower um, to her death, and then she actually falls, and he's like, oh, I did that. And But there's nothing there, and that killed me. Like, it, it made the film that much worse. And again, I don't know how to take it. And that may be Hitchcock's genius, but for me as a viewer now, I was very much like, oh, that doesn't feel right. I mean, I even, even, okay, let's, let's set aside the idea of this, um, allegedly tragic story for him, Mm -hmm. right? That he was, he, why did you pick on me? That's one of my favorite lines in this crazy movie. Why did you pick on me? Poor Jimmy Stewart. I just was like, oh my God. (laughs) 
And there's, I feel a lot of things about that, but um, more to the point, you know, regardless of the fact that he might be feeling betrayed or devastated or gutted or angry or whatever it is, the fact that not even shock or horror registers on his face that, you know, even if this woman is dead to him emotionally, a human being just plunged to their death. The nun had a bit more reaction on her face than he did. I mean, and I think that really says something. And Mm -hmm. I wish, I wish some of these, um, you know, people involved were still alive because I would love to ask, like, what was the thought process? What, what was that? Why was that reaction the one that you guys went with, essentially? Was Hitchcock kind of giving that? And I feel like um, when I was doing research on this, because the movie was critically panned when Mm -hmm. it first came out, like major mixed reviews, it did not get quite the focus of study and press that Psycho and Rear Window and some of his other kind of classics did Mm -hmm. when they first got released. This one was definitely rediscovered. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, let's talk about Vertigo. But then a lot of the people weren't still able to give interviews or recall quite as much. Like nothing that I was reading felt fresh. Mm -hmm. It felt like they'd been asked like 40 years later what happened on set. And um, yeah, I really just, I want to kind of, understand what went in. I'm tempted. I know that the 80s laser disc that came out, um, or it may have been released, yeah, 90s. There was mid-90s laser disc that came out, had some interviews with um, some of the original people on it, or at least was supposed to be a little bit closer to kind mm-hmm. of the source material. So um, I kind of need to go back and revisit it. And Kim Novak is still, I mean, she's still out there doing doing her thing and appearing at the TCM festivals mm-hmm. and things like that. So, you know, maybe maybe there's something from her. But yeah, it just, it's so fascinating to me. I'm interested in how polarizing it is, even just within the small group of people that I've talked yes. with this film about. Um, and I I mean, I will say Elric Kane, who I co-host the podcast with, Mm -hmm. it's still his favorite film. Like he will talk hours about how genius this film is. Um, But he did acknowledge when I was talking about it on the show that like, yeah, like it paints a bad picture of women Um, and and doesn't really clarify whether it's intending to do that or whether it's a social statement. It's also interesting too, because I think we're coming to it as a much more active movie going audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, moviegoers now, they, you know, slowly but surely we're obviously still dealing with a lot of, you know, representation issues, you know, across the board. Um, But I think that audiences are much more engaged and aware and and so I would wonder if an audience who was taking this now, and I'm not saying, you know, in a superficial way, like people who appreciate classic cinema, people who appreciate, you know, and want to see the the, the old movies, mm-hmm. um, if they could, if they would have our reaction of like, wow, what is this? This yeah. is crazy. Or if they would just go, oh yeah, well, whatever. That's what it was at the time. I don't. I think that it's hard to come at it because you and I um, in our jobs definitely come from it as like a historical standpoint. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's still, I always say that like my knee jerk reaction is more of kind of an audience reaction. And then I get into like my analytic reaction. Like if you look at the film um, White Zombie mm-hmm. um, starring Bella Lugosi, I mean, you watch it because it's a classic work of horror. It's very important historically, but that is one racist freaking film. <laughs> sure. And, um, Um, So, you know, it's one of these things where you still have to kind of say, it's of its time. 
It's still very important for what it was. It was still doing something very important. You know, Bella Lugosi is still great in it. One racist freaking film. Yeah. And there's a lot of them from that time period that definitely fall into it. And of course there's, I mean, women being exploited in horror films is, you know, something that we're still battling today. This one was just so in your face. Uh, yeah, well, and that's, so let's talk about that and let's talk about the list mm -hmm. because, you know, obviously, and look, it, I like lists because they give you boundaries or parameters, yeah, right? Yeah, lists and are fun. And I mean, I have to say on the Blumhouse website, running the site has given me um, a clear picture of kind of what people are most prone to click on. Yeah. Um, and if I write out a, a long, well-thought, researched piece on the top 10 Lovecraft movies, no one will click on it. But it, or Lovecraft movies, I'll just say, if I write out a, a long, um, well-thought-out piece on Lovecraft movies, like the history of Lovecraft sure. movies. But if I say the top 10 Lovecraft movies, I'll have 10 times yeah. the clicks on that. Um, and so we love lists. They're short, they're functional, and it gives us kind of a click overview. And, and people love looking at lists because it's like, I have five minutes while I'm sipping my coffee before I have to get back to my email. Let's look at this list. And they're great for that. I do it too. Sure. And we live in a we live in a world where, you know, you can go to your next Netflix queue, you go, okay, I'm a fan of this. Mm -hmm. And this person that I really like just made a list. And I'm gonna go on Netflix and I've not seen this one, this one, this one. So I'm gonna add it onto my thing. I use Letterboxd yeah. and it's all about lists. And that's how I find a lot of stuff is lists um, that are on there. Somebody, you know, is gonna list like 10 movies you've never heard of. I'm like, well, I need to see these. Yeah. So yeah. And and that's cool. But but what I think is so interesting about Vertigo in relation to the AFI list from 1998 to 2007, like we said at the top of the show, it moved up 52 spots. That's crazy. And so it is now, as we said at the top of the show, in the top 10 greatest American films of all time. Yeah. Um, and what I think is so interesting about that is that you'd think in 2007, perhaps talking about some of the problems that we have had with it, um, those things might have come into account and maybe it wouldn't have shot up the list so much. Like, um, I and I could be wrong about this, but I'm 99% sure uh, Birth of a Nation was on the 1998 list, but it was not on the 2007 revised list. And similar to, I think, a white zombie kind of situation. It's one racist film. That's a pretty racist yeah, movie. Yeah, I mean, but you have to, with Birth of a Nation, it's one of these things where you have to think of the time. Absolutely. And historically, it's an amazingly made film. That is correct. It is like the fact that they were able to pull that off at the birth of the film industry, it's it's an epic. Um, it's one racist film, but <laughs> it is an epic. So yeah, I'm surprised that they dropped that really. Like that is one that I, I always think that AFI, but then again, I feel like that might have opened up a can of worms media-wise to say mm -hmm. like, like the mother of all racist movies because everyone that's the one everybody knows. Like- White Zombie, no one's, you know, sure. the majority of the population has never even heard of that movie. Right. So no one's going to quibble about it. But everyone knows Birth of a Nation is just notoriously racist. So putting that on would probably have issues. Same thing with The Jazz Singer, the first movie Absolutely. to ever use sound. It has a man in blackface. Yeah. So incredibly racist, but very important historically. 
So yeah, I, I, these are ones that I can see them being kind of a media nightmare to include. It's funny because, um, you know, I, I certainly don't, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I suppose maybe I can cut this out if I need to, or maybe I'll just leave it in. But, um, I did an episode where I've recorded, um, an episode of about the Godfather Mm -hmm. with Sam Levine and, uh, revisiting that film how 40 years later as a, um, active audience member who is a woman yes. um, was really challenging. I believe so. And and so it's it's so, it's just, it's, but at the same time, you are painting a portrait of a time, yep. of a of a thing as it was, and and hindsight is obviously 2020, and we should all be so lucky that people just treat everybody nicely, and this is how it is, but unfortunately, that's not always how it is. Yeah. And so it's very hard sometimes, and I'm not saying that in the case of Birth of a Nation necessarily, you know, because that's a out, Right, racist movie. Yeah, it's outrageous. Um, yeah, it is. It, it, but at the same time, but so there are a lot of these things where you look at them and you go, "Wow, um, that is a product of of the moment." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, speaking of lists, um, the guests always get to pick uh, a movie that they would add to uh, one of these lists. And so, I'm curious what uh, what yours is. Well, I'm going to start by saying that I have issues with the thrills and chills list. Let, let's talk about it because. Um, now, you know, having, being an expert of the horror genre, having it mushed together into this list, I mean, I admit genre is a very slippery slope and things can be horror and musical and Western all at the same time and things can exist everywhere. But if you're making this type of list and you're going to say, this is the definitive list, I feel like you really need to separate those two because what you end up with is things like you end up with um, uh, things like detective mysteries sure. or um, close encounters of the third kind. Yeah, is on the thrills list. Yeah, and so it's it's weird the way that these things get kind of mashed together, where you're ending up with like secret agent movies and things like Indiana Jones on the same list as horror movies. And they are intrinsically different. Absolutely. And the way that they function, the way that they are received in audiences. And I understand that thrill and chill is kind of, you know, oh, they rhyme. But when you break down the minutia of what goes into a thriller, an action film, and a horror film, they are all three incredibly different. Now that's not to say that the same movie could not end up on all three of those lists, Mm -hmm. but it really feels like they're cutting themselves short by trying to combine it. And Thrills and Chills, it, it rhymes, I get it. But that's like saying, you know what, let's put musicals and westerns together because we could call it western lands and jazz hands well, it's and al- it will rhyme. It's almost and- like the Golden Globes do musical comedy. Yes. And then do drama. Yeah. And you're like, but, but you can have this, you can have Moulin Rouge. Or Sing Street. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and you end up with musical dramas. And so, yeah, it's weird. Um, so genre, because it is such a slippery slope, I, I did not like the way that it is stuck together. I agree. Where you end up with like James Bond sitting next to like these classic horror films. It just doesn't feel right. So that's my first issue. That said, um, one of the films that I think, and this is kind of out of left field, but Nightcrawlers um, mm. was a big one for me where just if you're talking about the craft of filmmaking um, acting score like across the board. That was one that I just felt like that was such just a well-crafted film. And and this is, um, again, I don't usually get up on this soapbox, but there's not a 
single female director on that thrills and chills list. Not one. Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, American Psycho. If you're talking about top 100 horror films, American Psycho would definitely be there. Um, So I was suddenly like, American Psycho, we need to get that one in there somewhere. I think that that's very, very astute. Um, And so so is Nightcrawlers, Nightcrawlers is your pick? I think um, I'm going to go, well, my two, Nightcrawlers and American Psycho. Oh, American Psycho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a a freaking great choice. I definitely think so. So how often do they reevaluate these lists? Because that was one of the other things I was trying to figure out. Because like with the thrills and chills, like let the right one um, was another one that I was like, okay, well, I feel like that should be on there. And then I was trying to figure out like when they did the list, when they revamped the list, I really think we should petition them to let you and I do a horror centric list. I I think you are onto something and I would not be mad at that. Um, Well, it's interesting because so as far as the AFI list goes, these are American American films. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the director is American, but it's made within the American studio system. Oh, so, okay. Let the right so that's going to definitely change it not, up a bit. Yeah, exactly. So, how does that work with like AIP? Um, well, I guess that even though that some of the investors may have been overseas, because like a lot of these films, it seems very difficult to tweeze out, you know how to determine if it is in the studio system. And plus, does that limit indies? I mean, well, I mean, Halloween was an indie, so I guess not. Yeah, I don't I don't know the exact rules and regulations, but I am pretty sure that if a significant, it says on the website, um, like if a significant portion of the budget or if it was made in a studio system, um, you know, I mean, then that's sort of a way that they qualify. Okay, because like film is a global market. And so it's very, especially when you get into indie films, a lot of times it's very difficult to determine like where, what type of film it is, which is why when you click on a movie on IMDb, it will say like country of origin and you'll see United States, Jordan, UK. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point to make. I mean, I think when you think about like, uh, like for instance, um, Pacific Rim, let's Mm -hmm. just say, you know, Pacific Rim had a ton of funding from China. This Mm -hmm. is, you know, and so that, but it's an American studio. Exactly. So, um, and in terms of reevaluation, you know, so 1998 was the first list, and then in 2007 they they called it the 10 year anniversary, um, which those numbers don't really add up. Uh, I don't know what the logistics are between putting out a list in 1998 and 2007 saying it was 10 10 years, years. but I'm sure that there's some justification for that. Um, But so. If they do another 10 years, we might be due for a reevaluation yeah, this year. Yeah, it feels like it should be coming up. Guys, separate thrills and chills. They are so different. I, you know, they so they do for genres, certain genres, mm-hmm. um, a top five or top 10. Like you can click through and you can find, you know, the top, or, or sometimes it's top 25, but they do smaller compact lists for like noir or for uh, westerns or for musicals or whatever. And... And I think that there should be, and science fiction even has one. Why but, is there but, no horror? I mean, because I think we're still in that world with, in terms of respect and respectability where, you know, the, the academics are still not on board. And what's fascinating is that anybody who's gone to film school knows that film school is a new thing in and of itself. Just a couple decades Absolutely. Old. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, the bottom of the barrel in terms of art and criticism. And now... I mean, 
And Har, I mean, we are still definitely trying to find, um, and I think that the finances help because Har is always profitable. Absolutely. Um, but in that regard, I remember when I was in my master's program, I was, um, and granted, this was coming from the Italian neorealism mm. professor, but I remember him telling me um, that I was going to have such a hard trouble, um, hard problem in the academic world focusing on horror, and he said this, horror is like two steps above porn yeah. in most people's eyes. And it, I have to say, like, it, most of the work I do in this industry is in very much like the horror world. Mm -hmm. So in that, like, we're all friends, we all know each other, we all love what we do, and we all respect the genre. But a lot of times when I've kind of worked outside of this, I get, oh, you're horror? Oh, and it's like, yeah, yeah, like it, it's yeah. still a slight struggle, even though it is one of the most profitable genres across the board, regardless of time period. I So, so I'll, I'm going to make this proclamation on this podcast. Um, barring some horrible, unforeseen accident, let's say that James Wan lives a long, happy life and continues to make movies, uh, you know, through the rest of his long and very important career, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, I I think he is the closest thing to a new Spielberg that we have because I think that yes, he makes movies that are in a certain genre. Mm -hmm. um, he's obviously starting to break out with things like Fast, Fast Seven or Furious Seven and yeah. and uh, Aquaman, which is coming. Um, but the human moments in his movies, the Insidious movie, I'd say the first Insidious movie, The Conjuring yeah. certainly is all a family melodrama yeah. first and foremost. And even The Conjuring 2, like, you know, I feel like um, the scene in um, in The Conjuring 2 where Patrick Wilson sits down and sings to the girls or sings to the family. Oh, it's brilliant. And it is, to me, a modern day version of Brody sitting at the kitchen table in Jaws and, you know, moving his hands and the kid sitting there and replicating his yeah. movements. It's this moment that doesn't, and when I say doesn't belong, I'm using quote fingers, in a in a big, scary movie. Both times you just feel like you could feel an exec giving notes saying, can we just trim this scene exactly. down? Maybe we should just exactly. lose it all together. And then somebody going, no, this is character. Um, I don't know if that actually happened, but, but you, it feels like that probably somebody was like, I don't know if we need this scene. Yeah, and that's that is that to me is the beauty and the point of James Wan as a director. Mm -hmm. You know, is that not only do I believe that we can look at Saw and we can look at The Conjuring 2 and see and see the growth and see the improvement, but it's still very authentic to his style and sensibilities. But the fact that I certainly believe 1000% that it was James who mm -hmm. said, "No, this, this is stays, this yeah. stays. This is not going anywhere. This is how you got me to make another one of these movies yeah. because he has always said, and I admire him for that, that Vera and Patrick's relationship in the film, um, The Warrens, uh, is the reason that he thinks the movies work. It's true. Those are what I, the families, I don't want to say they're forgettable, but if you ask me to tell you the names of the family members in each of them, I'm like, I don't know. That's right. Um, or even their specific, like, I can say who played the parts, mm -hmm. but that's about all I got. Um, and in the second one, I can't even do that very well, but Patrick and Vera, it's all about them. 
Yeah. yeah they're, they are the films. So, yeah. so yeah. That's, that's my proclamation. I think James is going to be the next Steven Spielberg. Woo-hoo. Mark my words. Go James. <laughs> okay, well, I think, that that, I think that's it for us right yes. now. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. This was really, really fun. And, um, you know, I, um, I'm really glad. Thank you for sitting down and doing it. Because I, Dr. Horror, I appreciate Dr. Horror. Oh my God. Taking the time. It's a great conversation. And, uh, and yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty, friends, that's going to do it for us today on Sending the Wolf. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation because I very much enjoyed having it. It was a treat and uh, gave me an opportunity to look at a movie that I thought I knew through a different lens um, and any excuse to nerd out about scary movies and uh, and carry the flag and defend the honor of my favorite genre. Uh, I know Rebecca and I are very happy to do. Um, so thank you again for listening. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast, Ascending the Wolf, is available on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play Music. If you can subscribe, rate, review, that helps other people find this podcast. And if you are able to contribute to the Patreon, um, where not only do you get access to the mini episodes that come out every Thursday, but you also get access to uh, movie nights and um, videos and all kinds of things, then you can go to patreon.com slash Clark Wolf. Um, Thanks again, guys. I'm really happy to be doing this, and I'm happy you're here with me. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.